text and then we'll pray. Hear God's word this morning from the book of Romans chapter 8 verses 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it can't. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your word would do its work in us. It is so easy and normal for us to live in the realm of the flesh. And yet you've called us to live life in the realm of the spirit. That's our home, our true home. And yet the other place seems like home to us. So I pray this morning that you would uh, wake us up, that you would help us to see where we truly belong in the spirit. Be with us today by that same spirit, we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So Matt talked about New Mexico and um, he and Sarah came to visit us about 10 years ago there. And that's where they learned that uh, the realm of the spirit involved hatch green chilies. But like there's things about culturally being in New Mexico that are different than being in the culture of Lincoln, Nebraska, right? So yesterday we stopped off at the uh, sports bar to catch the end of the Nebraska game. And uh, I asked Matt, I'm like, can I leave my backpack in the, in the van? <laughs> because in New Mexico, you don't leave anything in your car where it can be seen. Like you just don't. And uh, that's part of living in the realm of New Mexico. It's it's green chili and it's enchiladas and it's like, don't leave your bags in the car. <laughs> it's also like Breaking Bad. Like if you know Breaking Bad, like Breaking Bad is uh, filmed and set in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And while that's not exactly level for level, like there is like a reality to Breaking Bad in Albuquerque. And if you live in the realm of New Mexico, you also know something about manana, like the cultural cue point of living in my town is, yo, bro, it'll happen tomorrow and it's all right. Like everything can happen tomorrow. And sometimes you just wait till tomorrow and then tomorrow doesn't come and we'll wait till tomorrow again. Like that's what it's like to live in the the realm of New Mexico. Now here in the Midwest, like I'm not quite as familiar uh, as the realm of the Midwest as maybe 
uh, many of you are, but I was thinking yesterday about the, the, the Nebraska game and like what it's like to uh, live in the day after Nebraska loses. And Matt was telling me about that realm, like y'all are like kind of down. And... Now y'all weren't going to beat Ohio State, but like, like there was a moment there where you thought you were, right? So I want you to kind of keep that in mind this morning because what Paul's talking about here in, in Romans 8, which is like one of the best chapters in the Bible, but in our section, he's talking about two realms, right? So when you hear flesh and spirit, that's what I want you to be thinking about is two regions, two realms, realms with different practices, realms with different authorities, realms of a different location. That's the guiding image here, spirit or flesh. So like just to kind of introduce us here, the realm of the flesh is not necessarily the material side of life. Now it is and it isn't. It isn't just that. It's our nature in rebellion against God. That's what it means to live in the realm of the flesh where the authority is not God, but the self. And the practices in this realm glorify the self and not God. So their aiming point for the good life is self, not God. That's what it means to live in the realm of the flesh, to be in rebellion against God. And so that's why in this realm, it's corruptible and mortal. It, it has death at its centerpiece. People wear out, things wear out. That's because the self is the end point of the realm of the flesh. Now, the realm of the spirit isn't some like noble idea or impersonal force or being spiritual. It's God, his own spirit, the third member of the Trinity, and the life that proceeds out from father and son in the world is the Holy Spirit. So through this spirit, God is giving as gifts all the effects and benefits of Christ to believers. God is uniting himself to them, building himself into them. This is the realm of Jesus. And Paul here intends to call us to live in that realm. That is our now, if we have been brought into Christ, that is the realm that we're supposed to live in. To walk in the spirit and not to flesh. And, and just kind of his introduction, remember whenever Paul uses this term walk, like he does at the end of verse 4, which we didn't read. Paul says we are to walk not according to the flesh, but the spirit to walk means to cut a path, to wear down the ground, to pat the ground down in the realm of the spirit and not the flesh. And so my point here today is how can we tell the difference between living in that realm, walking, patting the ground in the realm of the spirit versus the realm of the flesh? So verse five, Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the flesh. What is their mind focused on, thinking about most of the time? What occupies brain energy? Mindset. Today, uh, I think it's today, is the New York City Marathon. My wife, uh, Danette, some time ago ran in our marathon, the Duke City Marathon. Um, and so when she did that, she set her mind on accomplishing that goal. And there was a, a gal in the church, her name was Laura, who helped my wife set her mind to it. So Laura gave Danette a plan 
laid it out with timelines and goals, running this far by this time, and then a little further the next week, and they would plan runs together on Saturdays where they did longer runs together. And of course, this all led up to race day. And there was a plan for eating and drinking and stretching and walking and a plan for recovery around race day. And all of this required time and energy and thought, attention. Paul has this kind of thing in mind. Set your mind on the flesh is like this. It's the sum total of our interior dispositions. Now, another way to think about this is love. Like, what things do you love? If you love something, you set your mind on acquiring the thing that you love. It it could be even keeping the thing you love. It could be placing yourself near or around in the gravitational pull of the thing you love. It's aiming your love by practicing certain things towards that aiming point. So we do stuff that shoots us towards that target. So for Danette, she wouldn't, she'd be the first one to tell you she doesn't love to run. That was not her target. I think the target for her, and I asked her about this just so you know before I shared this. Well, maybe not before. Uh, the target for her was being in shape. And behind that target was something related to the way she thought about her body. And the hope that she might become what she imagined herself to be. And I think getting more vulnerable here with this stuff, with her stuff, which is easy to do for me, <laughs> thousands of miles, or well, hundreds of miles away, is that she feels more lovable when she looks like her ideal. That's what she loved. And so then she set up a liturgy and a practice to hit the target. Friends, here's the crazy thing. Once we practice things in this world, like prepping for half marathons, those practices in and themselves are rarely ever neutral. Like formation is happening as you practice them. So like you might have this really good goal out there to get into shape and this can be good, right? But the very practice of your couch to half K marathon app can form and shape in you certain ways of the realm of the flesh. Like many things come preloaded with a vision of the good life that isn't neutral. And this is what Paul will say in other places, he'll call it the world. But the flesh lives in this realm. There are practices in this realm that do something to us, even if we're intending to use them for good. Now, the tricky thing is when this happens, you might think you're setting your mind on something in the realm of the spirit, but it's really living in the realm of the flesh. Now, I want to... get kind of controversial because I can because I'm not your regular pastor. So politics, like we Christians in the last 50 years have really attached ourselves to like political engagement. And we've become such an influential constituency that they have a name for us. The term evangelicals has actually morphed from a religious term to a political one. So let's start with the good. Like This started with maybe a vision for justice for, let's say, the unborn. Like, that was the the picture of the good life. And so we we were attempting to use power to aim us towards that target of justice. 
then this morphed over time into being about rights, like rights for Christians to practice their faith. Again, not necessarily bad, like the right to free exercise of religion is in the Bill of Rights, but that morphed suddenly. It became about a narrative about like, like a vision of the good life where we're seeking justice and power for our own sakes, where we don't want to be unsettled in our world by the pluralistic other beliefs in our world. And so we, we leverage our power to make sure our story wins. Again, this might be with the best of intentions, but this is what happens. We, we think we're living in the realm of the spirit, but really it's the flesh and it's co-opted us, our good intentions. They're morphed into self-interest and pride. We, we set our mind on victory, on winning. Paul is saying you're either in the realm of the flesh or the spirit, and that will be the controlling apparatus of your life. How do you know the mind set on the realm of the flesh ends where? Death. So walking this path, padding down the ground, looks like agreement with the flesh, agreement with the ways of the world. And in this realm, our minds are caught up with things incapable of pleasing God. And the result is always death. It always leads to death. Now, let me get a little bit more personal about this, like how this kind of plays out with me besides half marathons and politics. As a minister, I have a lot of things that tempt me. And one of those things is people pleasing. Like I want every sermon I've preached or you've heard to be the best sermon you've ever heard or been preached. Now, this isn't always in the driver's seat, but I recognize that reality in me. So, for instance, especially early on as a pastor, if there was little or no feedback about my sermon or if there were a few quips about the length of my sermon, I could feel on Sunday like a truck hit me. I don't know if I need to remind you that's a pretty normal thing, not because of feedback, but the the loss of adrenaline in preaching is at the top of the list. But this was more than just something physical. It was a vision of the good life that can drive me. It's setting my mind on the things of the flesh. Like, it's okay to want to preach good sermons and have influence and impact through the preaching of God's word. But it's very easy to then slip from that into people pleasing. And then when I don't get the desired feedback or praise or engagement, I feel deflated. Like, oh, maybe that wasn't very good or... And then that leads to me getting nitpicky and ashamed. That was too long. And I didn't say this the right way or that the right way. And why can't I be more funny? And this produces anxiety in me. And then I go home and I'm kind of surly with my family, like sad and then irritable and then angry. And at the root of this something is something that I love. There are practices to get at what I love, and these are driven by self-reliance around something good and holy. I am co-opted in these moments by something that lives in the realm of the flesh, not the spirit. And at the root of this is what we could call something like the false self or the old man or old woman or old humanity. Thomas Merton has this great quote. He says, Every one of us is shadowed by an illusionary person, a false self. We are not very good at recognizing the illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves. I must be a good preacher to be loved. 
To be accepted, I must have a better body. To be loved or accepted, I must win. Because if I lose, then maybe what I believe is untrue. Or if they win, then everything I value will be forgotten or lost. These are all illusions, by the way. Things we think are true, but aren't. And their thoughts grounded in the old man in the realm of the flesh. Merton continues, these illusions are the ones we are born with and which feed the roots of sin. For most of the people in the, in the world, there is no greater reality than this false self. A life devoted to the cult of the shadow is what we call a life of sin or life in the flesh. And the flesh, according to Paul, is always hostile to God won't ever submit to God's law. It cannot, he says. When we live in this realm, we cannot please God. Hear what Paul is saying. A life lived in the flesh is a life that cannot please God because it's based on the illusion that I must do something. I must be something. I must have something, fix something, usher in something to be acceptable. To God and to others. It's built on the self. And in this realm, we live in a way that honors the made above the maker. We live in a way that condemns others, blames others, exonerates the self, serves the self, loves the self over and against God and others. Or we live in a way that condemns the self and loathes the self. And in this realm, Paul says we are in combat against God. All right, so let's stop. Let's do an inventory. How do we know? How do you know if you're living in this realm? What is your controlling principle? What do you think the good life is? What's the vision of the good life that you have? Here's a way. Follow the trail of your time, your treasure, your affections, and your energy. Each of these is a stone that marks the path that you are patting down. Time, treasure, affection, energy. What's at the end of your time, treasure, affection, and energy? It could be being a good mom, being the hero of your family, saving someone, Notice that there's good things here. They're almost always good things. Being recognized in your field, being the smartest person in the room, having the money you need to help people and be comfortable, helping your children achieve their goals, being perfect, serving and being needed, having friends and good conversations, experiences and making memories, no conflict, peace in your home and your life. Follow the trail of your time, your treasure, your energy and affection. Also, gauge your anxiety. Anxiety in these moments is what Steve Cuss calls a gift because it serves as kind of an early detection device that your self is at work and you're living in the realm of the flesh. Like when you don't get credit for something at work that you did, or when you do get credit, but it's the wrong kind of credit. You get demerits for what you didn't do right. When, when you hear the voice of disappointment, 
Do you become anxious? And does that anxiety, anxiety quietly morph into anger? Or in the home, like at your house, you're always picking up for everyone in your pursuit to be a good mom and have a neat and tidy house. And so when there's a mess, you get anxious and you hear your mom saying in your ears, everything must have its place. Like these are usually good things we're pursuing. But what happens in this realm of the flesh, like my need for affirmation becomes dark. And I construct my life around the praise of others, their validation. And people just become a means to my end of getting it. This leads to death. Death to freedom. Death to healthy relationships. Death to reputation. It leads to condemnation, sin, death, exhaustion, and shame. And some of us are just so tired because we're like, we're like hamsters on this wheel, cutting a path in the realm of the flesh and not getting what we want. But we hit the alarm on our phones and get up and do it again and again and again. And your kids don't thank you for something you did. And it's like a bomb goes off in the middle of your mind. Paul finishes saying that life in the flesh, in verse 9, is living in a place where Christ does not belong to him. Now let's tease this out. Why? Christ came and died to free me from my need of your approval. This is no small freedom. Because this has been at one level a controlling principle from day one. Like we come out of the womb wanting approval. All the things I need to be okay, to be seen as the smartest, funniest, wisest, rightest person in the world. I need validation at any cost. And when I got it, my need is never satisfied. It only increased. Christ's death broke that power. So when I choose to revisit this realm and live here and devote my time and energy and affection to it, Christ's death does not belong to me. Like I'm choosing something else. And this is why martyrdom is such a powerful narrative for many of us. Like the anxiety that is produced in us from not getting the approval of our spouse, our kids, our boss, or our parents sends us into the realm of martyrdom. And we spin a narrative where we will self-righteously die a thousand deaths just to make sure everyone knows about our sacrifices. And you'll either do it with words or nonverbal cues and sighing. You'll pick up that other sock and make sure everyone in the room knows the death you're dying by doing it. Friends, that's a substitute in your life for death of Christ. Your martyrdom death becomes this thing we want people to know about because life in the flesh always demands a death. But Christ's death has freed us. Christ is our primary need. He fulfills our need for validation. We're accepted on his merits alone by the gift of grace We are made okay. We are loved and acceptable in him. We're freed from finding worth and validation outside of Christ. And we rest on this and his work and his words about us. In other words, we get Christ. And so Christ then belongs to us in a very, like very intimate and personal way. 
Like your false self gets filled with his life and you're transferred from a path that leads to death to a path that leads to life. And this is the message. Jesus died so I don't have to seek approval in my sermons anymore. I don't have to preach the perfect sermon. And Jesus died so I don't have to be recognized for all my sacrifices I make to my kids anymore. And Jesus died so I don't have to have my parents' approval. And he died so I don't have to have the perfect body. And he died so I don't have to win this or that argument. And I don't have to make anyone laugh anymore. And I don't have to know the best music or the best fa- or the most facts about COVID or be the most well-read. Like books and humor and clean houses become a way for us to serve other people and to find enjoyment instead of salvation. The false self never leads to life. It only leads to exhaustion and anxiety. And God has formed, forced a new path in Jesus that Paul says leads to life and peace. And this is what Paul says is life in the spirit, living in the realm of Jesus. In verse nine, Paul shifts from the third person to the second person. Y'all, y'all, however, are not in this realm. So We've talked about this realm of the flesh and what it is and how it like exhausts us. Well, let this wash over you this morning. Y'all aren't in that realm anymore. And in this realm, there's no condemnation. You are not in the realm of the false self world anymore. You are in the true self world. Christ has been given to redeem and remake you. Paul is reminding us who we are. He says, set your mind on the things of the spirit. What are the things of the spirit? Well, there are things that bring life, not death. Things that bring peace, not exhaustion. Paul has gone to great pains to remind us that you are not under law, but grace. The underlying principle of cutting a path in the spirit is that law won't get you there, only grace. And it comes as a gift. It comes objectively from outside of you. It's merited based on another's merits. And we constantly... Forget this. And so setting your mind on the spirit is the very fact that the spirit has come to give you this gift of grace, even as you're wandering in the realm of the flesh. And when we are rescued, we are still prone to wander there. We are to live in the world of the flesh with the spirit. And this is incredibly hard not to be formed or patterned after that realm. But there's grace here. And we must keep coming back to Jesus' reliance. This is where the true self is born at the foot of the cross, receiving mercy and grace. So setting our mind on the spirit begins with the gospel. Spirit proceeds out from the Father and the Son as a gift to remind us of our continual need that our merits come outside of us in Jesus. And to bring us back to that again and again and again. And if we do that, the spirit produces life and peace in us. So when you feel guilty and condemned by your struggles. Anybody feel that? When you can't stop doing. When you keep on doing. When you feel guilty and condemned by your struggles, the spirit assures us that Christ's blood covers us. The Spirit reminds you of the affection of the Father. 
for you. When you feel burdened and crushed by life's pain, the Spirit comforts and helps you. Spirit is a refuge for you. So, so much so that Jesus said it's better for us now that Jesus is gone so the Spirit can come. When you feel disconnected from God and full of doubt, the Spirit can break through your stony heart and give life again. Like those renewal moments that we experience at a retreat, in a worship service, in a conversation with a friend, that's the Spirit in breaking again to our stony, cold hearts, making us alive again to the, the beautiful good news that in Jesus we're accepted. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit wakes us up to the reality of all the good gifts in God's world that we can appreciate and enjoy and not use to find validation. When you're afraid and weak, Paul will say in Romans 8, the Spirit groans along with you and prays for you and encourages you in the truth and in the life of Jesus. And so be confident, be assured. If you fling yourself into the arms of Jesus, the Spirit is with you. If you've transferred your trust to Jesus, the Spirit is here right now for you. And you could not ever right now, no matter how you walked in this morning, be more loved. How do we know? Well, Paul ends this section looking at Jesus' resurrection. This means that flourishing is our end game. Life and peace is the end game for us. And Jesus' life producing death assures us of it. Look at verses uh, 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So the implication of that verse is to walk, to cut a path in this place, in this newness of life that has already been achieved for you and I. Is your time, treasure, talent, affection, energy being redirected by the reality that the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead lives in you? Are you being animated, in other words, like you see, like, you know, have you ever watched those little, you know, they make a little stick figure and then the next page, another stick figure, and it just kind of goes and then they kind of roll the page and you see the, the stick figure become animated? Like, that's what the Spirit does for you, you and I. He, he animates us in that way. Are you being animated by the realm where resurrection is the end game, the controlling narrative for you? Friends, like, when we get stuck on winning culture war, when we get stuck there, that is an avenue of death, not life. And the resurrection has freed us to not be concerned about winning, to lose so that we win. And it's hard. But that's what it means to live in the realm of, of the spirit and not the flesh. Like when I get up here to preach, I don't have to have a mini panic attack. I can rest in the spirit knowing that this is about resurrection not about me. What's the controlling narrative for you, friends? Follow the trail of your time, your energy, your affections, your treasure. 
Paul wants you to know that life in the spirit, though, is something you participate in now. Now, that's a mixed bag. We'll find realized fullness later. But fullness can come now in part. How do we know? Well, if Christ has been raised, the spirit has given life to Christ, then he will give life to you. And that is a great, a great benefit of this for us is presence. Like because the spirit has come and has animated us, we can be present. We don't have to be driven by our anxious hearts where we can't be present with another human being. For the spirit of Christ dwells in you. Don't miss the wonder of this. God wants his spirit to dwell in us both objectively and experientially. God wants to live in us. The spirit unites us to the objective work of Christ's atonement for your life. The spirit integrates and internalizes the work of Christ so that you can respond in faith. So much so that it was said of Christ is said of you. He died for you and he dwells in you. And the spirit actualizes that work of Christ into your very bones and body so that the story of your life becomes death and resurrection. So you can die to what you need in a moment to be present with another person in their needs because you are controlled now by the spirit. And the question this morning would be, is that good news for you? Like, do you want to be controlled by the spirit? If the spirit is in you, Paul says, you belong to Christ, do you? belong to Christ. The spirit has been sent to give you confidence and hope that you do. And the spirit is a more compelling agent of life than the compelling agent of sin living in me. You and I have been placed into Christ. This is our new dwelling. This is the word Paul uses that we dwell and inhabit. That's why he says in Christ, the old regime and reign is no longer your regime, no longer your place of residence, no longer your realm. Christ is in you. You are not in the flesh, but the spirit. And this is why you can be rescued from your bodies of death. Because Christ's presence in you and to you. You can then be present, less self-absorbed, more other-focused. And Christ is in you, then even though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. This same spirit who dwelled in Christ and raised him from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. This is our hope, our guarantee. I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, it's gone around uh, the Internet a bit. a guy was talking about a plaque that he saw in a, Christian's, uh, a Christian oncologist's office. It says, the, the plaque said, cancer, it was about cancer. This is an oncologist we're talking about. It says, cancer is so limited. It cannot cripple love. It cannot shatter hope. It cannot corrode faith. It cannot destroy peace. It cannot kill friendship. It cannot silent courage. It cannot invade the soul. It cannot steal eternal life. It cannot conquer the Holy Spirit. Now we could replace cancer with all those things and fears that we have that produce this gnawing anxiety in us. It could be, for some of us, COVID. We don't want to really hear about that anymore, but it can be that. It could be failure, 
Failure is so limited, it cannot cripple love, it cannot shatter hope, it cannot corrode faith, it cannot destroy peace, it cannot kill friendship, it cannot silent courage, it cannot invade my soul, it cannot steal eternal life, it cannot conquer the Holy Spirit. This is the guarantee that has been given to us in the giving of the Spirit. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead by this same Spirit, we have the same hope that Jesus has. Because Jesus is risen and has given us the spirit of resurrection, we can see our own future where there will be no more pain, no more medications, no more surgeries, where we will finally operate at our full capacities so that about five minutes into heaven, you and I will each turn to each other and say, uh, heart attack, catastrophic car accident, nuclear war. Does anybody even remember this stuff? Well, it doesn't matter because here we are. And everything we lose in the world, God will restore through the Spirit. So the Spirit is with you now. And what the implication Paul is saying to us is you and I have nothing to fear. And that power is real. And so Romans 8 carries the power of the gospel into every breath. And so the response is to hoist the sails, catch the wind, let the breath take us wherever it will. This is the love of God for us. If it seems too good to be true, ask God to open your heart. He will help you because he's good at that. Let's pray.